Good to be here with you all today, and uh, just wanted to let you know, I guess, sorry, first for myself, I'm the volunteer and men's ministry coordinator here at Bethany North, and before we uh, get going, I'd like us to say a word of prayer. God, I thank you so much just to have this opportunity to be here before you, to worship with so many of my friends and family here through you, Lord Jesus Christ. I ask God that um, as I speak, that the words that are meant to hit our ears, that they would uh, go and dwell within us, that we may grow closer as a community, and any words that I say that are not needed would just fall away and be forgotten, so that through all this time that we have together, we would be a community that worships and glorifies you with all of our lives, Lord God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, so, before we get going too far, um, I just wanted to re reflect a little bit. Uh, I don't know if some of you were here, but about a year ago, I had the privilege of t preaching for my first time. That time was Scott Sund. Um, it was sort of like a half and half preach and was a great introduction for me and uh, felt like I overshared a little bit, but I was really glad to have been able to do it. I uh, shared about Angie, my wife and I, our difficulty with infertility and the time um, of going through that. And through that, I felt amazing support from this community. We both felt it. And I wanted to, since I had the podium here, to be able to thank you for that, being willing to step alongside us, to be praying for us, to be embracing us, and uh, just encouraging us along this journey. And with that being said, I want to say that Angie is pregnant. Uh, and so, thank you. Um, it's been, it's been a big thing for us, and uh, so I want to answer some questions that I've been getting as we've slowly been sharing that with people. Uh, she's due November 21st, which means she's 24 weeks along. We have found out that it's a girl. Uh, we've been working on names, but we don't have one selected yet. And um, last but not least, uh, no, you cannot touch Angie's belly. And I say this because I think it's a little awkward. I don't think it's because I'm an overly protective husband, but I just don't understand what that dynamic is. Where else in life do we say, let me go ahead and touch your midsection? <laughs> and so I actually encouraged Angie uh, a couple weeks ago when we were having this conversation about the next time somebody goes to reach to touch her stomach, that she should at the same pace <laughs> reach towards their stomach. So it could be this interesting bonding moment, you know, a new cultural thing. Um, so, but in all seriousness, um, you don't really have strangers or even family touch your stomach, um, but it's important to have family uh, and you as a body of Christ to be able to embrace us and walk with us. And I'm so encouraged by that, and I've been so blessed by it, and I want us to continue to be a church that has those hard conversations around infertility and around adoption and around us looking like uh, family in different ways, and to remember that first and foremost, we are as a family, as a body of Christ, brothers and sisters brought together. And so um, within that, I want us to move to Exodus 17, um, but again, thank you. Uh, Exodus 17 today, um, as I started studying this text, I realized there's two conversations going on, and I want to highlight both of those conversations, but we just don't have time to address them both fully. Uh, but we do, what we do encounter today is a common narrative, a narrative of God's act of liberation. Specifically, one scholar writes, it reveals the fundamental concern about divine presence. 
The need to have God nearby reflects attitudes about God's twofold role as protector and provider. Within this, we'll soon talk about how the narrative asks each of us to move within moments of uncertainty and lead in places of dissonance. Ultimately, that's the main point of today. In stepping out, we lead people, both those within and outside of the church, towards the kingdom of God. But before we do that, I want to address verse 14. See, we've heard the story of the Israelites coming up and moving and getting to this place that they are right now. They... um, The Israelites have been provided for by Moses and God through crashing of a rock. They have this water swell come up, an oasis at Horeb. The Amalekites then come in and they attack the Israelites. And the Israelites attack back and they push the Amalekites back. But then God says, and this is the verse that I want to talk about. Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. From under the sun. See, I'm not fully sure what we should be doing with this text, but the story is something that keeps ruminating inside of me. And it ruminates inside of me because I've had so many friends who have either said Christianity is not for me or have left the Christian faith because they don't know what to do with this God. And see, this is difficult for me. Because scholars note that this is especially troubling because not only do they blot out Amalek, but Amalek is actually of Esau's lineage. So there's family strife going on within this story. But I, along with those same scholars, want to point out that this is a small story of a much larger narrative. It's a part of a narrative that insists that it is the creator who provides and protects The Exodus narrative insists that God's people remember that they too were slaves. And in this, they ought to care for the strangers. We'll read that in Exodus 22. But if we jumped back to Exodus 12, we would also read that God tells the Israelites to welcome in the outsiders. Welcome them into their community. And all of this is not to try to somehow discount the fact that real Human bodies were killed. I don't want to simply gloss over this text and say it's a mysterious tragedy. But see, I was convinced or convicted in reading through the theological perspective of a Native American theologian who deeply identified with the Amaleks. He writes, We need to be more careful of the ways, ideas such as those in the conquest narratives so that we can better understand how the self-image as a chosen people has provided a rhetoric to mystify domination. And that should be convicting. It asks how we, as a people, have the tendency to pull Scripture out of context to justify our own agendas. One African woman, African-American woman writes about those uh, people in power and those Experiencing oppression writes to both parties saying we are left with the realization that one must exercise caution in using these texts in the hope of transforming modern race, gender, and class issues. Brevard Childs, a prominent biblical scholar, he writes something that really uh, embodied my sentiment on it. He wrote, 
when understood as a political strategy, one could scarcely find a greater abuse of the Old Testament. And what I'm hoping to do here is to insist we cannot simply sweep this under the rug. But I do not believe that a sermon or a whole sermon series has the capacity to address this question. What I believe is that we will only address and come to better answers of this type of question when we gather in community and wrestle with it together. My hope is that my less than comprehensive address will simply reinforce the importance of the greater narrative that I believe is being shared here in Exodus 17. And specifically, that we as a people of God must come to know that one, God moves before us, Two, that we are all asked to lead. Three, we require the body of Christ beside us if we're to do this well. See, Israel had seen God go before them. They had seen Yahweh, the great I am who I am, go before them. The Israelites had witnessed the plagues in Exodus 7 through 11. They were then freed in Exodus 12 and were guided by pillars of cloud and fire in 13 and then walk on dry land through the Red Sea and then are freed to believe in the Lord and trust in Moses in Exodus 14. They were then so jubilant, Moses and the Israelites sang this beautiful song in 15 and then God provides for them sweet water. And then we jump to 16 and God gives them manna and when manna's not enough, he says, okay, I'll give you some quail. And by the time we're here, by the time we're at Rephidim, we would presume that these Israelites would be trusting in God again, continuing that trust. Even the place Rephidim reflects and foreshadows their experience with the roots, resh, pay, dalit, meaning support, help, and carry. Yet they go to this new land and they start to grumble. Oh, but the language ends up being intensified. It's not only grumbling, it's quarreling. The whole situation becomes so escalated that Moses pleads to God, fearing that he is about to be stoned. In verse 7, we learn that this place gets named Massa and Meribah, literally trial and quarrel. See, I think it's easy for us to say, if God had just provided one of those miracles for me, I wouldn't question. But I think all of us, if we were to admit it, we would. See, we're so quick to forget about God's provision. And I think this is part of why Moses has that staff. He's the one crushing it with a rock, and then it's there when they go out to battle. It's this place, this, this token, this memento. I think that's why Scott, over the last couple of weeks, has emphasized that we need to remember. Coinciding with this, though, is another important truth, that God both provides and moves amidst our questioning. Though we should remember God's faithfulness, we can also trust that God will not judge us for asking and wrestling with the difficult questions. See, Jacob had wrestled with an, with an angel, and even Jesus comes before God and pleads, saying, is there any other way? Jesus commands his followers in Matthew 7. He says, ask, seek, knock. And then in, seven, in Luke 11, he tells us to continue to be persistent in that pursuit. See, the answer may not sit well with us, for me, in my faith, it's involved a remembering that necessitates a continual asking that deepens my relationship with God. What I believe is that our Creator has gone before us, if we'll remember, and continues to go before us again in our seeking of God's presence. What did they ask? They asked 
Is the Lord among us or not? God, in verse 6, says to Moses, I will be standing there before you on a rock. God stands before him to show him where to strike his staff. This large piece of wood comes hurling down at the earth to crack against it. As life springs forth from this broken place, the creator standing there reminds that Moses that God alone is the one that brings life. I know that some of us here are in desert places where we, like the Israelites, are either foresee a thirst that is coming or we feel it now deeply. I want to affirm that God has and is going before you in these places. One for me was seeing my position in construction was driving a wedge between my wife and I in our marriage. I was just spending too much time away from home. See, amidst this, I didn't know what to do, but I knew that something had to change. And I had these continual stirrings that I should be looking to go back to school. And one day, while Angie and I were worshiping at the Green Lake campus, she turned to me and said, said, I could see you preaching. Now, this is the same woman who, before we got married, said, I never want to marry a pastor. But I needed to let go of this promising career to bring health to my marriage. It felt like something that I could lean on, but I knew I needed to lean on something else and that I needed to step into what was next. And as many of you know, I'm still on that journey. Other of us have feel dried up by their pornography addiction. And we need to do as some of uh, my friends have done and limit their access to the internet and put up firewalls on their devices. Communally, it might be asking what stereotypes or systems need to be broken so that we as a community through CBA and Tuesday Bible studies can begin to invite those who are at the methadone clinic or a tent city to experience life and to experience community. What are the places and the structures in our lives and the lives around us that need to be struck if people are to again experience life? I believe the Holy Spirit will show us these places. But my question is, will we go and obey? You may see things as physical and social realities that cannot be overcome. But I ask that you consider being a person of imagination. We do, after all, worship the resurrected Christ. It may look like physically dismantling or reconfiguring something as we see here in Exodus 17. Or it may be this much-needed spoken word that we later encounter in Numbers 20. In either story, we must remember that it is God who is leading. We can trust that this same creator is willing and ready to move and guide us through the Spirit. In my own faith, I'm beginning to ask how I can experience God more fully, more fully experience God with us. I want to feel it in my bones. I want to know, and I want you to know that the Lord is among us. Interestingly, though, I believe we only encounter that when we're willing to step in our faith or answer our phone. Just because God goes before us, it does not mean we are not called to move. We must step forward as we're called, as circumstances required. And I call this leadership, and that leads me to point two, and that is that we are all asked to lead. 
First, I think it is important that we define leadership because it's a pretty trendy topic these days. For our purposes, I want to lean on Dr. McKenna's definition that insists a leader is a person who goes first. It's simplistic, but it's true. Let's remember that I'm not saying this leader is a good leader or a bad leader, but simply a leader. If you were to imagine a group of people to my left here, to your right, to my right here, your left, and we're standing in a line and I step out in front, all of a sudden I am left vulnerable to all those people behind me. Any arrows they want to shoot at my back, they're free to do it without me knowing. And then those coming up front are willing to attack me however they want. I'm the most vulnerable position. See, a lot of us feel like that's a difficult thing to do. See, if a leader was to move people in a direction, be it out of an inspiring vision or, or a co coercive um, stipulations, peer pressure, people will still end up moving in a trajectory. But here Moses, the archetypal prophet, highlights the struggle of leadership. See, even at the beginning of the Exodus story, we hear he is hesitant to carry that mantle. And I believe that's okay. I even believe that it's noble. Because how many of us here really want to follow after a leader who says, I want to be the leader. I want that power. I believe many of us do not consider ourselves to be leaders. How often do we prefer to point someone to someone else rather than take ownership? We see it starting at the Garden of Eden. See, humanity sins, and then humanity points to humanity, and she says, oh, it's creation, and then, and then all that's left is just who, where. Really what's being said is, God, if you could have created us better, we probably wouldn't have sinned. How often do we do that? We're hesitant to lead because we're, we feel left vulnerable. See, Adam and Eve don't even want to step out in front of God, the God who's seeking after them, because they feel naked. See, we know we're not God. We know we're not perfect. We don't want to uh, help out and deal with people that are quarreling or trying us. We don't want to have to make decisions that other, affect other people's lives. And if you're like me, you would often rather your faith not have to cost you anything. But Jesus tells his followers many things, but this, that's not one of them. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And those of you who did the Bonhoeffer study with us, uh, those of you men, um, I want to remind us of a quote here. Uh, in Bonhoeffer. It's a little bit long, uh, but I think it's important. It says, the cross is laid on every Christian. It meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When call Christ calls a man or woman, he bids him or her to come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him. Or it may be a death like Luther's, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus. The death of the old man or woman at his or her call. We being made new are called to move in a new direction that is going to lead us vulnerable. See, Jesus calls us salt and light. It's not a matter of if we're salt and light, but whether and where and how we're going to be salt and light in the world. I firmly believe 
that that's leadership. I believe that us being salt and light in the world is what it means to be ambassadors. I see it as our call. See, if you're at the grocery store and witness a customer being rude to the teller, you can apologize for that individual's offense and lead that person, that teller, into seeing another side of humanity. At a friend's house, you might hear a vile or a racist joke. You can speak up and highlight how that is dehumanizing or hurtful to a people who are created in God's image. And while you're spending time with friends in a church and someone tries to lure you into a gossiping situation, you can remind them of the importance of dressing problems one-on-one and that we as Christians reconcile to one another through that way. In each of these, you would be sticking your head out in a culture that would find that a little awkward. Some may even be put off a bit, but I would be willing to say that they get to experience and see the kingdom of God in that moment. I use the contrasts that are dressing sin and bringing life because I see that as an allegory within this story, something that this story drives us toward. How and where are the dry places of our lives that need to have life drawn out of them? What are the sins that do not allow people to experience the fullness and the flourishing that God intends that need to be pushed back? Our fear of vulnerability often creates this false narrative that insists, I don't know what to do. But do we look? Do we listen? In Exodus 17, we read, the people are quarreling and grumbling at Rephidim. Where is that occurring in your workplace or in your home or in your town, be it in Everett or Shoreline? Or how about within our nation or this globe? Where are people being filled, filling, being left dry? People are attacking the people of God at Rephidim. What are the structures and the sins that move through our streets and our schools and the internet and our nation and the world that limit people's ability to flourish? See, complaints and brokenness frequently hit our airwaves, the newspaper, our social media accounts with such ferocity that we become numb to it. I'd argue that we don't know where they are, that we say we don't know where they are, but we know where they are. That in our life and the life around us, we see them with such enormity that we actually feel paralyzed by them. I know I often do. And that's why I think we need to be a discerning people. At times, those who respond to our leadership may inappropriately grumble. Yet we must hold this intention with the real needs that people are experiencing. See, when I was in college, I had this nice pair of rose-colored glasses and this Pollyanna disposition. I thought I could change the entire world for Christ. Now, seeing my limited nature, I simply hope to help others experience the freedom of God and hope that Christ offers us through daily interactions. That means my leadership cannot be in all areas. But it means that there are specific ones to which I'm being called. See, we are not going to bring about the kingdom. Jesus Christ brings the kingdom. That's Christ's work. It takes our intentionality and our boundaries and a willingness to step out. Thus, I'm starting to consider more and more what Eugene Peterson describes as a long obedience in the same direction. See, we are leaders in a multitude of moments on a common trajectory of revealing God with us. Emmanuel. 
helping humanity to know that the Lord is among them. For many of us, this multitude of needs is overwhelming. As I talk to people both inside and outside of Bethany, more of us feel like we are surviving rather than thriving. Our culture insists that we ought to be self-made, independent islands of success. But the Exodus narrative says nothing of this. Moses, this archetypal prophet, requires the powerful work of God. He needs Aaron to be his voice. God even requires elders to witness the striking of that rock. And later Joshua, his protege, is the one that is sent out to fight battle. And both Aaron and her help him to ensure that the Israelites become victorious. And this leads me to my third and final point. We need people alongside of us. We read in Exodus 17, 10 through 12, Joshua did as Moses told him. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held up his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. Earlier I alluded to the fact that our plates are full. We are slammed with work. We have a lot of balls in the air. We're as busy as a bee. Whatever metaphor you want to use for this society that values busyness. But I want to read a quote um, from this book, Living the Sabbath. It's one of my favorite books from seminary. The author writes, The economic impulse of industrial life, to stretch a term, is limitless. Whatever we have in whatever quantity is not enough. There is no such thing as enough. Our bellies and our wallets must become oceanic, and still they will not be full. Six work days in a week are not enough. We need a seventh. We need an eighth. Everybody is weary, and there is no rest. For many of us here, if we reflected on our status in comparison to the rest of the world, we might be able to change our perspective. Pew Research did a study in 2015 that said 7 out of 10 people in the world live on less than $10 a day. And yes, I concede that many of those people are not the ones in Seattle where housing markets are on the rise. And it could be argued that those people do not have someone breathing down their neck to take their job. But I'm not trying to make that point. I'm not trying to speak about our context, but about our needs. We read that God provides and protects for Moses, both for his own health and for the health of the people. I wonder if God is providing for us or if our striving is us providing for us. See, according to various news agencies that I've read and that I've listened to, Americans are working more hours and taking less of their vacation than anywhere else in the world. Why? What are we really gaining? And does any of that stuff we're gaining align with our true values? I believe we need to create some margin in our life. And I'd like to argue that a lot of us have trouble doing that because we can't trust God without actually having others alongside of us to help us trust God. Like Moses, we too encounter a world that is thirsting for life, and we are weary from war. 
Jesus knows this. Just as God went before the people, so Jesus, the incarnate God, says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, if you are like me, you find yourself emotionally and spiritually and physically exhausted at the end of more weeks than you'd like to admit. Our yokes are heavy. When people ask how things are going, the common response is, busy. Culturally, I think there's this code word of, one, I'm doing fine and I don't really want to talk about it, or two, I'm thankful to have a job. But really, I think the undertone going on underneath all of that is, I am stretched so thin that I'm afraid I am about to break. How many of us feel that? For most of us, our answer is probably an amalgamation of those three. I'd imagine after walking in this dry desert, after being challenged regularly by his followers, while trying to maintain his own relationship with God, that Moses felt weary. Yet Moses requires help. And that leads me to this next point. What would it look like for us as leaders in various places and moments we are leading in life to become a people that are willing to accept help. See, Moses had asked Joshua to organize and lead the battle. Aaron and Hur went up with him to the top of the mountain. Then when Moses was weary, he provides him a seat for sitting. Moses accepts this help without comment or request as far as this biblical narrative tells us. See, it's not easy for us to ask for help or to delegate. Our individualistic culture depicts this as a sign of personal weakness rather than a sign of communal strength. I'd argue by seeking and accepting that it's one of the best ways we can grow individually and as a body of Christ. I want to share some of my own moments since going to seminary. The first one's the junction. As some of you know, we had this small remodel project that we started out on last year, a couple years ago now. Um, as my quarter was coming to an end, pro- stuff at the project started to heighten, and I needed somebody to step in. I was fortunate enough to have Conrad Jorgensen and Dwayne Engel be able to step in, and I just handed things off to him, and I could trust that it was going to get done. It was such a blessing for me. See, and then along with that, Dwayne didn't only ha- help me practically, but he also helped keep me lighthearted. He impressively told me that Conrad had actually recently gotten two PhDs, post-hole diggers. All this came at a time that I needed to be reminded that I don't always have to take life so seriously. Another was earlier this past year as I struggled with questions concerning race and privilege and my own identity. I was blessed by professors and fellow students and people in our community like Casey Bowie and Nicole Hood and John Pang and Nathan Hawkins and many others. See, these people helped me as a Caucasian male student learn about racialization and injustices towards people of color and women and what my role might be to help bring justice in places of brokenness, where my voice may need to be spoken and where I may need to be quiet, where I need to help move, and where I maybe just need to sit back and support. 
at my own home, I thought it would be a good idea to do a bathroom remodel for Angie as a Christmas present. It certainly wasn't the best idea for somebody who's trying to practice creating margin in their life. But I had people like Andy Duffus help me find contractors. And Bob Ericks even came over to give me a pointer and help set some tile. See, Bob made me feel as, almost as if I had no other choice but to accept his help. And if he hadn't, I probably would have resisted. But it ended up being an amazing blessing to me. And finally, I want us to talk a little bit more recently. See, we put out a request to the welcome team because I knew I'd be preaching this Sunday and I couldn't help lead in the ways that I typically do. I was blessed to have key leaders like Josh and Megan Smolensky and Jamie Hollingberry and Eric Satala reach out to people who don't typically serve on a fifth Sunday. See, we set up our schedules on Sundays one through four. The fifth is a little bit more rare. But people showed up. See, these examples and names are but a few of my much larger experience of this congregation, all of you who are so willing to step in and up to serve and bless one another. Through serving alongside of you, I have come to know and experience that I'm part of a community. I feel like I have a family here. And each week, I feel so blessed to gather and pray with many of you Sunday mornings before we serve. See, my title is a volunteer coordinator, role as a husband, the demands as a student, and responsibility as a friend and a son and a brother can all feel like such places of burden. And I know many of you are wearing numerous hats as well, and that your challenges and mine, though different, that you still face equal, if not more, stressful situations. Unfortunately, many of us wait to the point that we are stretched so thin we are about to break or that we feel like we're at the end of our rope before we're willing to reach out or accept help. I'd even like to argue that all of the various hats that we are wearing, they don't need to be burdens, but they can become places of hope. Right now, I'd like all of you to take out your phones, seriously. I know they're in purses and back pockets. I'd like you to take out your phones and write a person a note of gratitude through a text or email or social media. And I know we don't have the greatest reception in this place, so it may just need to be a draft for right now. Or maybe you need to write it on a bulletin so you can email it or call someone on it later. But please, take a moment to write somebody. Let them know how thankful you are for the places that they have stepped into your life. And continue writing as I speak, but this is why I want us to not only be a people who are willing to accept help, but to be a people who seek to offer it. See, I believe that is what it means to be a people of God, to be the body of Christ. We lead when we step up to serve others. Paul explains that this is the fulfillment of the law in Christ. In Galatians 6.2, he writes, Carry one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. See, God perceives 
the people's and Moses' needs, and God steps in. Not only does he provide water to rescue Moses from the brewing mob mentality and the people's despair, but he also provides leaders and the elders who can later guide others to water and remind the people of God's provision through Moses. Aaron and Hur initially seem to act as an emotional support, climbing up this mountain with Moses. But then a practical need arises, and they provide a stone to rest on. For some, this may be seeing a face holding a sign and smiling at them and handing them some food or some cash. For others, it may be simply writing a check to a friend in need. Others still, it may be taking a weekend away from whatever you are going to do to be able to babysit for a couple who really needs to reconnect. See, it's not so much about your age, your gender, your race, your marital status, or the many other boxes that life tries to have us check throughout the days. It's about being willing as a leader to see the needs in the world, to look at your resources, and see how you can provide. A group of guys not so long ago from Bethany went to help Buzz and Betty on their house. They went to work on their deck. They took one of the 4th of July weekends even to help remove and rebuild this deck. They saw a practical need. They had the skills and the passions and they went to work to bless a a family in our community. Some of you have heard the quote by Frederick Buchner. The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. We have to see those places where people thirst, where spiritual darkness seeks to attack, and we need to be willing to intercede. See then, Aaron and her, their scene gets to be a little bit more intimate. See, they hold Moses' arms up. I want to pause here to read verse 12 again, and unfortunately I didn't get it set up on the slide So I would really like us to read it together. Because it says, But Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until sunset. See, we step into tenuous and vulnerable places in life together. I see this moving as something that requires a more intimate fellowship and friendship. See, the more authentically we know people, the better we can know and perceive their needs before they're even brought up. These are the places where we have difficult questions about theodicy, like I brought up earlier. These are the situations where we have honest conversations about depression or infertility conversations where we talk about the deep fatigue that affects our body at such a level that our soul is aching. Moses was tired. We all would be after traversing a desert, walking up a mountain, and holding up our arms for half a day. Think of the strain first that comes to his shoulders. Then the feeling that comes to his triceps and biceps and forearms. He's holding his arms out. Now consider the internal dialogue that is likely going on in his head. I know I hit the sea with this staff, 
But what are you doing here, God? These same people wanted to stone me not that long ago. I wish I had some water right now. Maybe I should have just stayed in Midian, where I watched over Jethro's flock. That was a little easier. God, you must come and help me. See, I don't want to turn this into some mystery science theater, but I'm sure he had some agonizing questions that matched the aches in his muscles. How comforting it would have been to his soul to experience others support his aching arms. Yes, it was a moment of vulnerability for Moses, but what a relief. But Aaron and her made themselves equally vulnerable. See, culturally there are some differences, but from what we can tell, they didn't ask if they could help. They simply did. It's easy to not want to offend somebody by offering help, let alone actually doing something for them. We also all know that helping can seem more like a hindrance sometimes. I'm sure you've all had that happen once or twice where you get an extra hand and it creates more of a mess than a help. But amidst that potential backlash from Moses, they stepped in. Stepping up and supporting, supporting Moses would not have been comfortable. I'd imagine that his body was covered with sweat from the desert heat, that the dust of the desert would have caked his arms, filling them with sweat and mud, his arms having likely not bathed in that nice fresh spring would have put their heads in line with a pungent odor. Remember, being a leader who steps out is not pretty. We don't read anything in the text of Moses asking for help. And it highlights how important it is to perceive those needs. For those of us in positions where we have leaders, whether it's on the career ladder or through some family dynamics, or maybe a spiritual mentor, I want us all to know and remember that we can help lead them in moments. Furthermore, I think it's important that their support helped bring about a victory for the Israelites. See, as we think about this story allegorically, we must think about how we, as supporting one another, have the opportunity to bring about the kingdom, to bring about love and hope and peace and joy and flourishing. Again, some of these moments are more practical and others are more intimate. But our leading in these moments has the capacity to affect the lives of humanity. Now to help highlight some of this, we can find Don Heath around. He's going to come up here to share a story about Buzz and Betty and what it looked like to help them build this deck. And as he's coming up, I'd like us to grab those phones that we had just a moment ago and to be prepared to write another text or message. And this time, it, within our social context, it may be something to the effect of, I've seen this going on, and I'd like to offer this to help. I'd really appreciate you allowing me to bless and serve you in this way. Please do take the time to make that note. I think it's important. I think it's vital. Some people need those words. All right, Don, thanks for coming up. You're welcome. Uh, I wanted to begin our conversation asking just how you first perceived the need uh, of Buzz and Betty. Um, it, 
This will sound different than the first time, but okay. it started with ice cream. Uh, I always love a party, and uh, so we've known Buzz and Betty for a long time, and um, we've done several uh, work parties for mm -hmm. them. And uh, so the, the last time we did a weeding, raking, cleanup party for them, and, and it really is a party. I, th I think that's how the spirit moves me is um, mm -hmm. if you're doing a work project but you're with a bunch of friends, then it's a party. It hmm. doesn't matter what you do. So um, Buzz and Betty paid us with ice cream on their deck. Mm -hmm. And Larry Armbruster um, was the one who really pointed out how the deck was getting kind of dangerous. So mm -hmm. that was sort of the genesis of that. So, uh, And I think we were all just um, kind of ready for another party and... <laughs> uh, and ready to work together again. So that's where it started. Cool. And, and where had you seen God moving in your life previously or in other arenas that had maybe inspired that kind of ethos and ethic to serve in that way? Um, I, I've always wanted to be Amish. Okay. But we don't do much barn building here. <laughs> so, but I, 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 I have felt for a long time that we need to live with each other and be in each other's lives. And sometimes that means just going and working with each other, helping out at different, you know, different things at each other's houses. So anyway, that's just that's me. It. And, and then what helped make you decide to move, to say like, okay, we need to go and do this. We need to move now. Is there a... I, you know, that, that was uh, more Larry, I think, than okay. me at that point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how did the gathering of people together actually occur? Like, how did you practically, how did that practically happen? Oh, boy, is email a good tool or what? But just knowing a few of the guys that are um, uh, carpenters and, and way better than me. Mm -hmm. So I just reached out to those guys. Then Tom sent out some feelers to people mm -hmm. and, uh, and a group of, a perfect group of four or five people came together. Just, it was like um, the Holy Spirit was ready to move and light up four or five sparks into a flame, and that's what we were. That's cool. And, and then um, within that, you were working. So Don's a, owns a landscaping business, and that's a very busy time of year, this spring, early summer. And so who was supporting you while you were trying to support and care for someone else? Well, Ellen always is my big support and lets me go off and do all these crazy things. But um, so there's that. And I, um, I, I guess that would be the main one. Cool. Thank you. And so um, I think it's important for us to think about just some of these little practical places. You can go off if you want. You can stay here. Um, sorry, last time, last service, uh, we were about to pray. And I put my arm around Don's shoulder to pray. And he asked me, can I touch your belly? Um, <laughs> So, anyway, thank you, Don. Um, I I'd like to invite the prayer team to come up um, as we move into prayer. And I would like us um, to all bow our heads as we prepare just to seek God for a moment. God, awesome to be part of such a loving and caring church. It's awesome to be able to enjoy this time 
with your people that we may be able to worship you together and gather to seek your face. I ask that you would help us to remember that you are going before us, that you are asking us to lead in different moments in our lives, and that you have called us to be united as one body, that the world might know us by our love. And so I ask God as we move into worship that you would be working in our hearts, that you would be stirring us in the places that we meet we need to be moved so that we may glorify you and reveal your kingdom. We pray all these things, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. And as we move into worship, we have a prayer team here. And one thing that I brought up last service is that I've always wanted to share this because it's sort of a pet peeve of mine. I don't understand why we as a church don't come up and ask for prayer more often. I know every single week there's one place in my life that I need prayer. And I'd like to think I'm not the only person. And so I'd like to encourage us that if we don't feel comfortable with the vulnerability of coming up, which I know many of us don't, that we maybe lean into the person next to us, or that maybe we utilize the prayer journals in the back a little bit later, or reach out to a friend. Let us be a people that prays together that seeks God together and finds strength through that together. It's important. It's a spiritual, mystic, awesome opportunity for us to be able to have connection with the divine.